0: Hello everybody, Mackenzie here from Before the Downbeat A Musical Podcast. Yes, I know Season 5 has been taking a bit longer to get put together and get out, but I promise you that toward the beginning of 2023, we will have the Season 5 premiere. And boy, do we have a great season lined up for you, and we definitely have some big announcements to make. In the meantime, though, between now and the new year, we are going to be doing something special. As you may know, I am part of another theater company called Cup of Hemlock Theater, where I am the co artistic producer. And on that show, we do reviews of live theater that we see, as well as reviews of stage pro shots, as well as artist interviews and roundtable discussions. So between now and then, I'm going to be releasing. Our episodes we've done on musical pro shots we've covered, including the pro shot of Oklahoma starring Hugh Jackman. We have a pro shot of Showboat that we've done. We've done one of David Hasselhoff's Jekyll and Hyde. So we have a few great episodes that I love to introduce you to this other venue that I do. So if you have interests beyond musicals and want to know more about traditional plays and hear from other local artists, This is a great podcast you can listen to. So check out these episodes, and I hope you'll join us on the Cup of Hemlock feed as well, because you'll find me there as well. Thanks, everybody. Stay tuned for season five. I promise it's coming early 2023. Thanks so much. See you soon and enjoy listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to. Another duet review here at Cup of Hemlock. This time, we're revisiting Anatevka, but to discuss the film version specifically and its director, the wonderful Canadian from Toronto, Norman Jewison. Not a Jew. He is a goy.
1: <laughs> yeah, it
0: does um, It does. And so this documentary is called Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen, directed by Oscar-nominated director Daniel Rain. And joining me on this journey back to Anatevka after our whirlwind experience the first time around, it is the wonderful Mr. Ryan Barakovich.
2: Hello, Mac. Good to be here. Glad you didn't do the full Tevia introduction like last time. (laughs) I (laughs) think you made the right call. It was fun the first time. I was all ready to roll my eyes at it again, but (laughs) good to just do the hello and
0: Ryan, you know one of my dream roles is to play Tepe. I
2: do, and we'll talk about in this episode whether or not it's appropriate for you to do so, maybe.
0: We'll get into it. <laughs> but, Ryan, what is in your cup today? And mm-hmm. I must say you're looking very festive in your sweater.
2: Yeah, thanks. It was actually said, just for some context, we're filming this March 1st of 2022, mm-hmm. having just seen the, this documentary presented in the Toronto Jewish Film Festival, but it's also going to have releases at other festivals in New York and LA closer mm-hmm. to probably when we do release this episode. And then the I believe they said that the Blu-ray and DVD release wouldn't happen until around Hanukkah. So I guess this is kind of a hanukkah ugly Christmas sweater. type Why there's no menorahs on it? It's not specifically, but like, yeah, I thought that seemed appropriate. And I wore a sweater in our last Fiddler. So maybe if we continue doing episodes on documentaries about Fiddler, because there are more <laughs> to plumb the depths of. Maybe that'll be a an ensemble theme, as you like to say. And he'll be my, very proud. And in my cup, I'm actually drinking coffee right now. Ooh, in my
0: the cup, you. cup. There you go. Look at that. Love it. And today, I am drinking another wonderful glass of tangerine grapefruit crystallite. Mm-hmm, my nice. favorite flavor. Good, good choice. Yes, thank you. All right, Ryan. So yes, we just watched this over the weekend. It just premiered in Canada at the jewish film festival mm-hmm. and we actually had the privilege of being in a zoom q a with the director daniel as well as the film as well as the Fiddler films title Ms. rosalind harris mm-hmm. who was superb yes, uh any people, people who are working them. on the fiddler remake coming up i highly recommend you pull a rita moreno on west side and cast ms harris as yenta the matchmaker
2: and if you do take that suggestion now you owe mac some kind of finder's
0: fee for suggesting it exactly cast me as one of the as one of the anatevka people i'll happily come on board sure (laughs) yes either way all right ryan well let's get into this documentary so first off what are your overall thoughts on this documentary do you feel it tells the production history of the film well as this film was toted as The Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen. So you're coming in expecting it to be how the film got from point A to point B. So do you feel it conquered its goal? Did this documentary live up to its title?
2: I think it did. It tells the story very well. I just, in general, as an overall appraisal, I liked it a lot. It really did a good job of telling exactly the story it wanted to tell. And something that Daniel said in the Q&A that I thought was worth mentioning is that he doesn't feel like what he did here and what he was trying to do here is to tell necessarily the exhaustive or comprehensive or definitive version of how this film got made, this film being filler on the Roof, not the mm-hmm. documentary itself, because think about that in circles <laughs> if you can. But he had a very kind of specific vision of the story that could be told within it, I would argue, and we'll get more into this in a future question, that focusing on Jewison as this protagonist figure gave it this sort of narrative shape and Mm -hmm. throughline that Mm but it knows what it's doing and it understood that's the story it's telling and in that I think it was very good and very efficient and yeah I'm not complaining about that by any means Mm -hmm. and yeah in general it was really good and I thought there was actually a lot of interesting filmmaking stuff just in documentary filmmaking on display here that I imagine we'll have occasion to talk about in some future questions so we might not need to get into more detail about that here, but overall, yeah, very good documentary. I was happy with it.
0: Yeah, I and for me, I also agree. Like, I thought this documentary was superb. Like, when I saw the original trailer, I immediately tagged Ryan, being like, "Follow up? <laughs> yep." <laughs> Question mark. And so I was really excited. And when I saw it was coming out this weekend, I mean, it was like, Ryan, now is the time. Break out the fiddles. So, 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 so we. Got, jumped right into it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I watched it actually twice before we did the Q and A, and the Q and A was superbly well done, very well moderated. And so, yeah, I think once again, it's telling the production history from the Norman Jewism perspective, mm-hmm. and more about what his experiences as a as someone who is not Jewish, but certainly has a, certainly has close connections and feels very strongly and passionately about the Jewish faith comes in and takes on this piece and then what's the fallout of tackling this piece afterwards. And I mean, they did a really good job of editing around and really kind of keeping it honed in on Jewison and his experience bringing this very popular musical to the big screen. So everything regarding the cast, because Jewison does mention how there are deleted interviews he did where some of the actresses who play the daughters talk about Molly more who played Yenta or actress who played Golda or the actor who played model there's more of those cut cast reminiscences about fellow cast members that just didn't quite fit the overall edit of the film which showed which shows that this daniel knew what he was doing in the sense of he knew what the story was norman jewison and his relation with fiddler in judaism in general so it was very well done so yeah i think they told a very concise and as Ryan said this isn't the de- and as daniel said this isn't the definitive lord of the rings extended edition three-hour documentary extravaganza sure. about the making of this, even though I would totally watch a three-hour behind-the-scenes documentary about the making I of would, and I, I hope so. we get more Fiddler documentaries. I like. I don't think there's ever like a ceiling
2: of, okay, we've said everything there is to say yeah. about Fiddler. We saw a very good one that we'll talk more about in a minute, about
0: the Broadway production. This was a very yeah. good one about the film, but there's always yeah.
2: more to unpack. You yeah. could do
0: a whole documentary about Topol and his experiences doing Fiddler, because, yeah. I mean, he's done the role... All oh, basically up until 2009, when he finally stepped away at like in his mid 70s. And again, as I told you in our deleted scene in our last epi- filler episode was I was supposed to see him in that yes, bloody tour and he blew his shoulder out of Buffalo.
2: But that wasn't deleted. You That made it into the episode, didn't it? Did it make it in? I, yeah, you talk about how you saw Harvey Firestein instead. But... Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, a rich man. yeah, exactly. But no, don't I bring think... him back for the for the remake. Yeah. Go for and it, Alfred
0: Molina, Mandy Patinkin, not Harvey Firestein.
2: <laughs> we love you, Harvey. But if you're watching, but it's <laughs> funny that you mentioned like Topol's perspective as a possible, like if we were to see another documentary about the making of Fiddler, his would be interesting because something that Daniel said in the Q&A is that, and Daniel, if I'm misquoting you, get in the comments and please tell me otherwise, that the series of interviews that eventually became this film, Topol was actually, if not the first one, one of the first ones. He before was. he'd even interview Jewison. Mm-hmm. So I kind of think it's interesting that he was, Daniel was accumulating all of this interesting material about Fiddler, about the film, thinking mm-hmm. of, okay, not really sure what he was going to do with it. And then interviewing Jewison seemed to kind of click into place. This yeah. is
0: the story that needs to be told. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, let's dive a little bit deeper into the documentary. So mm-hmm. the documentary opens with the scene of Tevya and the butcher, Laser Wolf, Having an argument at the wedding following the gifting of the gifts, which Laser Wolf gave was chicken, was five chickens for the first five Sabbaths. And Topol and Tevia and Laser Wolf get into it. It's a great, funny scene. You can keep Uh, your
2: diseased chickens. Exactly.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You will leave my chickens out of this. It's Uh, a classic. me, a bargain is a bargain. The terms weren't (laughs) settled.
2: Yep. Great Great scene. scene
0: yes it is but why do you think daniel chose to open the documentary this way because it starts with that scene and then it pans out to show the behind the scenes footage of jewison directing this particular confrontation at this big ensemble wedding moment do you think there was a better clip that could have opened this documentary because we see clips throughout of like if i were a rich man matchmaker more tevka there's shots throughout from the film. So why do you think you opened with this particular argument? And what do you think? Do you think it worked? Or do you think there? Or do you, think you would have rather it opened on a different particular sequence from the film?
2: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about it. I Ooh. I don't want to say it worked or it didn't work, but I just found it was curious. And that's why I kind of did want to make sure we address this on some mm-hmm. level. Because to me, I think the reason or the main reason why i could think of for why this clip was chosen and this was also again talked about in the q a we're going to talk about this a a lot i guess is but that they had access to the national film board of canada Mm -hmm. had sent a film crew to follow jewison just as a canadian filmmaker working in yugoslavia on this production that the national film board of canada sent this like documentary crew to do that, And they made this short documentary film about that. So having access to that footage is where we get a lot of this behind the scenes material that we do see in this new documentary. Mm-hmm. So what I like about that scene in particular, not even specifically the fact that it's the scene at the wedding with this argument, but the footage that we saw was good that we like we start in a scene that we've all seen the movie we know it well and then the camera pans and we see jewison behind the camera Mm -hmm. and it's kind of is showing this okay we're peeling back the layer of this is the making of and you get to see our central character and one of our main side characters being Topol all in relation to each other in this making of process now i do wonder having not seen that national film board of canada film i do wonder if there were other scenes in it that could have served that same function of just pan the camera, show Jewison making Mm -hmm. the movie. Because when the movie began, the documentary began, and this is the first scene we're introduced to, I had a sense of like ominous foreshadowing watching Mm -hmm. it, which I thought was interesting because I thought that it was a very kind of deliberate editing choice or storytelling choice that was trying to telecast something about possibly arguments or inter-community disagreements or broken arrangements. And I thought, oh, maybe it was a fraught production of making the film Fiddler on the Roof. And maybe that's what this documentary is going to be showing us. So isn't this an interesting choice of scene to bring us into that? Mm -hmm. And then that wasn't the case. It seemed like it was a fairly smooth production making the film. It's still an interesting story worth telling. But it, that foreshadowing didn't seem to pay off if it was even intended as foreshadowing, which I doubt now that it was. And that's okay. I'm not saying it has to be that. But it does make me think about, well, why of all the scenes is this the one that they chose? And I started trying to mull over in my head, especially since we decided that this is something we were going to talk about on this episode. Well, what scene might I replace it with? Just thinking, even if they don't have that behind the scenes footage, I thought, well, maybe they could just start with something as simple as the opening of the movie Fiddler on the Roof and use that as like just yeah. a good starting image or maybe something somber like Anna Tevka at the very end of mm-hmm. the film. Like that's just an, or maybe even something as like iconic as just if I were a rich man, because that's an image that a lot of people have in their head when they think about Fiddler. Absolutely. But I, as I thought about it more, there were two possible scenes that actually came to my mind that would have been more appropriate, not just because they have this iconic imagery, but because they would do the work of that foreshadowing that I thought we were in store for with that first Mm -hmm. scene, but actually pay off in relation to what the themes of this documentary actually turned out to be. Right. And so there's two that came to mind. They aren't necessarily both concrete scenes, but I'll just talk about them both. And then it's basically the same reason for why both. So I'll explain that in a second. The first scene is, Tevia telling the constable, "If only you were a Jew." Mm. The, the second one, it's not. This one's not as concrete a scene, but something with Fedkia. Fiedka? I can never pronounce that character's Fiedka. name. Fiedka. or uh, if not a scene with Fiedka, at least the scene of Tevia and Chava talking about Fiedka. fish and a bird yes. or
0: whatever. Yeah, the a bird may grow. love a fish, but where will they make a home? Yeah.
2: So, and the reason which
0: why t- I what gets into you later on it. <laughs> In the documentary about how he purposely kills the joke.
2: Yeah. But, like, what I think is interesting about these two moments that I've highlighted here is because they are both instances in Fiddler on the Roof, the movie, where we are questioning the value of a character being not Jewish. Mm. And that is essentially the story that this documentary is telling. It is saying Norman Jewison was a goyish man who had a very funny, perhaps nominative determinism in his name that his name just happened to be Jewison and it's asking does it matter that Mm -hmm. he wasn't did it make him any more or less equipped to tell the story and the film comes very clearly on the side of it doesn't matter and we'll have our own discussion about that in a minute Mm -hmm. but I think these moments that I've highlighted here where You know, if the constable was Jewish, would things have been different? Well, he Mm -hmm. certainly wouldn't be in that position to be the constable, but would he be able to sympathize and fight for the community in a different way? And Mm -hmm. this whole question with Fiedka and Chava at the very like you know the climax of the story essentially is this is the last daughter, and it's the one with the one move that Tevya will bend but not break on. Mm -hmm. And we we talked about this in the previous episode in Fiddler, but you know. The, this documentary is making a counter argument to what Tevia does there, that it kind of doesn't matter if this person is Jewish, he's willing mm. to be part of this community, like if he's willing to marry into it. And I think if that doesn't feel like a good metaphor for Jewison making this film, I don't know what is. And maybe that, in my mind, might have been a more compelling, like rhetorically speaking way of starting this documentary. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts of your own?
0: I mean, for me, I go... I mean, it's a fun, I mean, that's, you know, the wedding argument always gives me a good chuckle. It is it's, fun, I like it a lot. old men yeah. just bickering with each other. It all, I mean, for me it also just show, once it pans out, it just shows how good Norman Jewison was at engaging with the whole cast. Like you see behind the screen, cueing everybody, getting everybody kind of building the momentum of the scene. Like you can see he's a very active director. So I think that's a good clip that kind of shows that. I also go, they also mentioned how this was a small documentary. So it wasn't like, Lord of the Rings where they had like hours upon hours of extended feature behind the scenes footage of them making the armor and stuff like that. I mean, that wasn't done in the 70s. That wasn't anything. And musicals were a dying art film format at the time. So it wasn't like they were investing a lot of money into it. I mean, I mean, now we get more retrospective documentaries about the making versus on set recording things. So I, I also question and go, did it was this just one of the shots they had that wasn't used in other parts of the film? So because of that they're like, great, we'll use the limited footage we have here. I do like your idea though using the opening, but what I would have done is because I use the storyboards mm-hmm. throughout, is it would have been great to see like the scene transition from storyboards into the actual film. And maybe right. if there is by chance any footage of Nor Norman Joseph filming some of the opening sequence somewhere, then maybe use that just because it is a like the opening scene and it's showing the transition from storyboarding to the finalized version of the film. So you could have gone the whole journey of to the big screen within, or even start with, because they show clips of tradition in, with Topol in it from London, archival mm-hmm. footage of that, and like show some of that to then the storyboard to right. the film to then the final film version as almost like a, three, a three-way transition shot.
2: Yeah, I like that. that so also
0: you could have done, you could have done, but once again, like I think it was more just what do we have available? How do we show Norman Jewison as a director working the scene? I definitely love your idea of doing the constable scene after what was, I mean, that scene's always heartbreaking because you it comes right after L'Chaim, right? Where, where all of a sudden the Russians and, and the other villagers of Ani come together in the bar. There was a potential for a brawl to break out when when they drunkenly bumped Tevya, and then it becomes a dance and then it's this big community celebration moment and the next scene is, I like you. I wish you were a Jew. There's gonna be a pogrom. Yeah. And just the anvil fall of that moment is so heartbreaking, so well done. So I mean that's a scene that I think often gets overlooked. So I think it would have been a really good scene to start with as well. I think that's see, a good choice.
2: See, the more I'm thinking about it though, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with myself now because I actually <laughs> think while I get rhetorically what that yeah. scene would be doing in relation to the themes, it because it poses such a like opposite conclusion to right. what this documentary does because yes have wishes that the constable was a jew but well i'm not and i'm also gonna ransack your village because and then kick you out in a few weeks like or months yeah. or however long months. the story takes but yeah months yeah. yeah
0: we see the seasons yes we do <laughs> right. so so yeah, yeah i don't
2: know if that like thematically does the same thing that i was kind of working through i in think you have
0: to just to take the small part of the conversation of it's too bad you're not a jew Mm-hmm. And, then, and Tevye kind of reiterating that point of, it's too bad you're not a Jew. And I yeah. think you'll, you'll get in, into the pogrom mischief part. Of it. Well, yeah, he does call it a pogrom. He calls it a mit, mischief.
1: Yeah.
0: Make mischief. Uh, yeah, a demonstration. Mischief. Or a demonstration. Or yeah. That's it. A demonstration. Yeah. I mean, that I that think, that, yeah, you definitely wouldn't want that scene alone because, like, the opening clip, it's only very short because then it spans out into the yeah. in, into the wider shot, which is the behind the scenes. where The scene continues but now it's from a different perspective which once again is telling that story of you saw this version you know this scene but what you didn't realize was behind the scenes is norman juice was like pointing at people and building a, a, and getting their energy up to respond Yeah. so uh, yeah i mean, yeah it's an interesting choice when you when you pose the question of whether it's open i hadn't thought about it so when i would go back and go oh yeah like that is an interesting observation yeah. a choice like when you're directing something you make a choice of what are you going to show It's not just some random thing of, oh, let's just throw this scene on It's (laughs) There's a deliberate directorial choice as any good director choosing a shot. It's why.
2: Yeah, and it only occurred to me as a question because I had that expectation of, oh, this is foreshadowing for something that then wasn't paid off by the end of the movie.
0: Too bad we didn't ask Daniel this in the (laughs) Q&A on Sunday.
2: I was thinking about it, but I'm like, nah. I didn't want it. I honestly didn't want to get a definitive answer on it. I wanted to kind of allow myself to think through it as a receiver. But
1: (laughs) yeah, that's
2: fair. That's
0: fair. All right. Next question. Are we ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. So how does this documentary compare with the previous documentary of Fiddler on the Roof We Covered, which was Fiddler, A Miracle of Miracles? Yeah. Is this a good companion piece? Could you see this in a two disc DVD (laughs) set sold at your local Walmart? Yeah,
2: well... Speaking of things that we could have and maybe did ask Daniel <laughs> during the q and I, I did pose this question to him. Well, to, not precisely this question, but I was A-version, curious. Yeah. yeah, I was curious if he had seen this quite recent 2019 documentary, yeah. but... I would have been very surprised if he hadn't seen it while he's working on his own "Filmer on yeah. the Roof documentary. But I asked, had he seen it? And if so, if he had any thoughts on the dialogue that the two mm-hmm. did with each other, because I think it's kind of indisputable yeah. that they work as companion pieces. Mm-hmm. Like they're both documentaries. One about picks Hitler. up where
0: that one leaves off, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I mean, even if they didn't, even if there was like a lot of overlap between them, I still think a companion's the companion mm-hmm. is a companion. Like it's, yeah. They they're different films. They will obviously have different information, different details, different, you know, focuses in their storytelling. So yeah, it seems pretty, you know, self-evident that they would be companions. But what I liked about Daniel's answer to the question that I posed him is that he said, yes, of course, he did see the film, and watching it kind of did force him to reflect on, okay, what is the story I'm telling? That ground has all been covered, so and I think it's probably that has a lot to do with the very focused character centric story that we're given here because it is also, he could have made that very definitive, you know, this is the story of the making of the film. And that still right. would have been different from Miracle of Miracles because that what that was about the Broadway show and this is about the film. And in addition to being about the Broadway show, that's also just about the legacy and longevity yeah. and cultural universality. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think By focusing on the film and really focusing on Jewison as this protagonist, we got a very different perspective that couldn't have been featured very prominently in a documentary that was about the stage show. Jewison Mm -hmm. does appear in that documentary and they share the same anecdote of him talking to the executives who offered him to direct the film. He's like, you know, I'm a Goy, right? Like, it's that was like the most overlap we got between the two. But how could you not include that in one Mm -hmm. that is just about the documentary? You also have to realize that even if they are companions, and we certainly treated them as such by watching mm-hmm. one and then watching the other in fairly short succession, most people, well, maybe not most people, but a lot of people will only see one. Yes. Not everybody's seeking out all of the Fiddler documentaries. like we might. Be. I am but, shocked. But I think Daniel is smart in the mm-hmm. sense that... He wasn't just making this movie for people who already saw that other one. He made a point of not retreading all the same ground, because then why even bother making your own movie? Just direct people to that one. But this movie does, while still being a good companion to that, isn't reducible to being a companion to that. And it does stand on its own very well. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, I was so pleasantly surprised when this documentary showed up as as a Facebook suggestion of a group you may like. I was like, "Oh, all right. Let's take a look and check her out." But yeah, I mean, compared to Fiddler, I mean, it does get into the film, I guess into the film in the sense of how did it how did the film overly impact the the musical's legacy? As as we know, as, as Topol says in both documentaries, which is this was seen by over 6 billion people. Or yeah. however big, the big number, whatever it is. And he, go, and he goes, they all couldn't be Jewish. Mm-hmm. So clearly, so so clearly, and he talks about how the fact, like, it had a big release in Japan and things like that. Yeah. So And Rosalind said in the Q&A, too, mm. that, like,
2: there are a lot of people who only know Fiddler from the movie. Yeah. yeah. Which, like, and I think that's reason alone why it's worth telling this story divorced right. from. The, and the fact that mm. this very important keyword in the title, this journey to yeah. the big screen. Obviously the stage show is part of that journey yeah. and, but they do have different legacies and different engagements and mean different things for different mm-hmm. people. And I think this yeah. film does a good job of unpacking mm-hmm. just this one narrow sliver of, okay, how do they make the film and what does it mean that the film was made?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause yeah, there are different, there are minute, sm- surprisingly some small differences between the film and the stage. Like in the film, you wouldn't know that Fjetka has a song in act two yeah. that he like model gets his own engagement song. There's a whole other song for Yenta to sing in the village. So like there's extra little bits and pieces that just aren't uh, uh, that aren't in the film that which is fine. It totally works on its own. I mean there's also added things for the film that we're not on stage like the extension of the pogrom, Golda going going to see the Russian Orthodox priests to find out about the wedding. There's all that type of stuff there. So that's the nice thing is that when you discover one, as Rosalind says, and hopefully it leads you to discovering The other, which would be the hope, which I assume is actually a lot of cases where people know the Fiddler film first and then it's, oh, it's coming to my local theater or my community's putting it on. Maybe I should go check it out because I like the movie or like I know the music because of the film. Funny, the same thing happened with West Side Story. West Side Story wasn't a big hit until the movie came along in 61. And then that really kind of skyrocketed the stage show. Yeah. Up the ladder. Same thing with Sound and Music. Sound and Music was big, but it wasn't until Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer did it that it became this worldwide phenomenon. So it, once again, it works as a good companion piece, where they're passing batons to each other. Where there are similar stories, but at the same time, like I like in the one like in Miracle, Miracles, Topol talks about how when he recorded, If I Were a Rich Man, he had a toothache.
1: Uh-huh. In
0: this one, again, more about well, how was that song or like, how was that song created and filmed? Yeah. First, uh, uh, on film, like, I, 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 what was the process of getting Topo up the ladder that. musically or him at the end? Like, where does he look to find God? Like, all those little things where it's like that works in this documentary because it's about the film versus Miracle Miracles, where it's more about Topol and his experiences. As Tevya and how that legacy and how and how that's affected him down the road. So that so they're taught they're coming at the story, but from two different angles, which is neat and that's what makes this such a bigger, more comprehensive. Which I would really would love to see a two disc set of the of this thing released because they really do work together. And I would encourage everybody to go watch one and the other because yeah. you'll you'll come out very enriched by it.
2: And can we also just talk about jeff goldblum narrates it <laughs> like that's, that's something that this one has that the other doesn't
0: <laughs> you know you know it's funny when i watched it the first time i had totally forgotten jeff goldblum narrated mm-hmm. and i didn't really, and i didn't really pick up on his narration because there's not a ton of it
1: yeah and it's not very a ton of it, subtle. And it's
2: subtle and he as much as he does have a distinctive voice it's definitely really, though yeah it's not like a, if james earl jones or morgan freeman were narrating it, yes. you couldn't miss that like I sort of, I agree, I knew ahead of time that he was narrating it, but I kind of, it wasn't until a few narration segments in that I kind of remembered, oh, right, yeah, that is Jeff
0: Goldblum. Well, well, that last well, well, wasn't about watching it the second time was that I could actually find the Jeff Goldblum narration because I came out of that first and going, where was he in that? I don't remember much of his narration at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cause, cause, it cause definitely. He, yeah, because he, he's not doing his Jeff Goldblum isms because he has his isms. But he's definitely not like, this is a very just straight him. Yeah. This isn't Dr.
2: Ian Malcolm. This isn't the fly. This is a very much, you know, I was tasked with just filling in these parts that they needed narration for, which on one hand, I'd say it's maybe a bit of a shame that they have this great resource that may have been underutilized, but it also might have been a bit of a mercantile constraint of, okay, we have him in a sound studio for like, maybe one day top. So let's just get these individual lines. I also don't necessarily know this would have been another good question to ask in the Q&A. How, at what point in the process, because they did talk about him in the Q&A a bit, but they at did. what point in the process did they know they had him? Because, mm-hmm. like, maybe they recorded all these lines before they even knew the entire through line. Maybe he recorded a bunch of stuff that just didn't fit right. the story anymore, so they cut it out. Yeah. So Maybe.
0: Yeah. Maybe. All right, well, let's get into the next question. Which is, Norman Jewison has notably stated that he is a goy. How do you think his experiences of being outside the Jewish faith, yet wanting to be part of it, influenced his direction in Fiddler?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So this, to me, is the big point of mm-hmm. the whole documentary. We've talked about this already. we circled around it. We kept saying, we'll come back to it like in more detail, and this is the place. This is it. And we did already kind of litigate this a bit in the previous episode or we kind of d- we had more of a conversation about does a does a Jewish actor have to play Tevia or have to play like the main roles in this show in general. But the directing like position is like an interesting one. And the film is very the film, the documentary. Sorry, the film about the making yeah. of the film. the yeah. The documentary <laughs> is, I think, very clear in its stance that. Mm-hmm. It is perfectly all right that mm-hmm. we don't have to think cultural appropriation. How dare this Goyish mm-hmm. guy do this? Mm-hmm. But it isn't it very deliberately isn't necessarily making the argument that anyone can make anything and it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's saying this one guy in particular was very well suited for mm-hmm. this material. And, you know, we talk we see all these scenes in it about how growing up he even though he wasn't Jewish, he faced anti-Semitism just because mm-hmm. people assumed he was Jewish just based on his name. And he, mm-hmm. so he has that experience in his, like in his biography and got married under a chuppah for God's sake. Like yes. and that his he, second wedding. Yeah. And like the fact that he like, he sure he is not genetically Jewish and by mm-hmm. the standards of religious conversion, he might not even be like actually like Jewish, like, yeah. cause you can also convert to Judaism, which it doesn't seem like he's ever done, but, yeah. but like, he is clearly exposed to this culture, knows it well, has a great respect for it. And, you know, he, it's I loved the line that was in the documentary. Uh, for as long as I could remember, I always wanted to be a Jew. Very Goodfellas-esque like uh, <laughs> that. But yeah, it's to me, the argument being made here isn't that anyone can do fiddlers, that this one Goyish person is the best suited mm-hmm. for it. And there was also all the stuff, like, about his commitment to civil rights, his collaborations with Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier. And, like, the documentary seemed very intent on flexing his allyship credentials. Mm-hmm. And, like, not just for Judaism, but for just his very progressive stance on many things that he you know, this movie was made a long time ago, Fiddler on the Roof, this movie being. But, it, you know, it's good to know that he was kind of on the right side of history with a lot mm-hmm. of these things when a lot of people from that era weren't. Mm -hmm. Which is why there's one little moment in the documentary in particular that I felt like they brushed over a little too quickly as if it was charming, where the daughters were all reflecting on how they were eating all this delicious food that craft services had prepared for them. And they were starting to gain a little weight and Jewison told them, that's it, you're gaining too much weight. They had to shut down production for a week so that the ladies can slim down again. and like. Not great. I, I understand on a pragmatic level that you're making a film. There is continuity as a factor yes. that they, they do kind of need to look consistent throughout. But
0: they're also could... in a starving village.
2: <laughs> yes, I get that, but it's not cool to fat shame your female collaborators. I guess is my. Interest. I don't
1: know.
0: I mean, the that shutdown story... production
2: on those grounds. That was the one kind of because. This documentary essentially treats mm. Jewison as this like messiah figure, the perfect ideal protagonist, mm. not just for the story of the making of, but the ideal person too. if ever there was a guy that could direct Fiddler, <laughs> it's him. And like the fact that the final moments of this documentary are him accepting his honorary Oscar in 1999 and the last line of the film is not bad for a guy. he says in his acceptance speech like that is Love the that. narrative we're going through here but yeah so because we're kind of putting him on this very high pedestal i think it's okay to critique things from his (laughs) like we talked a lot about jerome robbins in the previous version and yes yeah he's praised in his own time still praised to this day Mm -hmm. by a lot of the people who were interviewed in that documentary including the late stephen sondheim who was still alive when we recorded our episode of it and has since Mm -hmm. passed but yeah we can recognize that there are you know nobody's perfect and there are things that could have been done differently is why I bring up that point in particular.
0: It's true. Well, I mean, yeah, but for me, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that story about him shutting down the production for a week. I don't know if he shut it down and just for the actresses and then did other things with Topol and Norma Crane or Molly Vacan or Laser Wolf. Not quite sure. I, I've never read the production schedule. But though well, as a director, I can see why he would do it. Uh, I clearly, if your director's noticing something and it's now becoming a continuity concern, then maybe you do kind of have to put your foot down and go, we got (laughs) to shut it down. And I'm sure he did it in the nicest way possible. I'm sure he wasn't a dick about it where it's like, you're fat, we're shutting you down. It's more just, the image is off. You're looking too well fit to be starving in the Ukraine right now.
2: And it's funny that they don't make that argument in the documentary is to kind of explain why. Like, I actually didn't even consider that. Like, yes, they are very poor in this village. Yeah. That is a reason. Like, the continuity was the main thing that I was thinking of. I don't know if you watched El Camino, the, like, Breaking Bad, Jesse spinoff movie I that no. came out recently. It wasn't very good, don't bother. But yeah. Jesse Plemons, who plays Todd in Breaking Bad, appears in flashback scenes to stuff that was going on Mm -hmm. in Breaking Bad and he's gained a lot of weight since then and it kind of you know momentarily took me out of it that like wow you're this is supposed to be taking place concurrent with all that other stuff but you're clearly a lot heavier now yeah and like it took me out of it for two seconds but then I got over it I'm like okay yes this is made at a different time it's on a now I get that that's a different standalone film Mm -hmm. that's set in the same world and in the same time so whereas continuity within the making of a single film itself might be yes. a bit more of a tricky issue. I,
0: but- guess, I guess it would be. I think back to when, I mean, it's always tricky when you're working with children or with or with things like that, where it's just getting continuity right. I mean, look at like Sweeney Todd, for example. When you watch that film, the actor who plays Tobias starts off really little of the end. He's <laughs> almost above Helen Bottom Carter's shoulder. And it's all that Helen Bottom Carter's pregnant throughout the filming of that film. So you see her changing in size throughout the film. and such. I mean, they tried to hide it as best as they could. There's other things you can't really shut down production for. This, where it's like, hey, shut down for a and week. Let's get you back down to fighting shape and size, and we'll pick right back up. I mean, I thought it was more funny about the fact he made them go shave their armpits.
2: Well, yeah, that also, <laughs> I guess, is another one that I kind of forgot about until now. But yeah, like to get to the kind of meat of the original question. Right of is it okay for him yeah the film makes that very clear in the anecdote Mm -hmm. the same one that we did here relayed where the producer arthur Krim talking to him about uh yeah we want you to direct it what if i told you i was a goy and he paused and i wrote down the quote which i don't recall being in the other film but i could be wrong. it wasn't
0: it was a different quote
2: yeah the arthur Krim, the producer said again quoted by jewison many years later but what does that matter we don't want a second avenue Yiddish production. We want a film for everybody. Yeah, And I take a little issue with that, actually, because yes. I, I get that this is speaking to this, the theme of the previous documentary mm-hmm. of this big idea of universality and that yeah. I don't love the implication that you need a non-Jewish director to make that happen, that if you had a Jewish director, then it would just be also... Like, kind of offensive to Second Avenue Yiddish productions because, like,
0: there is a really good Yiddish production of Fiddler that just happened.
2: Exactly. And I think it's a little dismissive of if you hire a Jew, he's just going to make the Jewish story. Whereas, like, I think there are, we've, Mm-hmm. talked at length about how there is a lot of universalism in the broadway show that this is based on with a mostly jewish creative yeah. team except for hal prince but yes. so why would having a jew direct it be any different and i think yeah the fact that we've gone over that jewison was so entrenched in this community and so
1: mm-hmm.
2: so in love with it and really yes. does kind of share these experiences mm-hmm. specifically because of his perceived jewishness i don't know if that's a fair critique even if i get the kind of very charming point they're trying to make about it
0: yeah Yeah, I mean, for me, my big thing is what made Norman Jewison a good choice for this is he understood the concept of othering. Hmm. And that is big in this, whether it's Fietka and Hava and the whole bird doesn't love, bird may love a fish, but it's othering, right? Like it's, we have their circle, they have our circle. Like it's that division. And I mean, Norman Jewison throughout his whole life has been exploring otherness in the Hmm. sense of the fact that his last name is Jewison, but he wasn't Jewish. He goes to the synagogue and gets turned away by the rabbi, or not the rabbi, it's by the Hebrew teacher, who mm-hmm. so I guess would be the rabbi. But either way, so, so he was turned away there. So then, it, so, so, so then he goes into the war, comes out of the war, goes down into the States. He goes and sits at the back of the bus, something yeah. he doesn't even think twice about. He gets othered for that by the way, people on the bus, because he made a choice to sit somewhere that he didn't even care to sit. He was just like, I want to sit, I'm sitting here. And he gets off the bus. Then he does, in the heat of the night, which is all about Sidney Poitier, a black detective, coming, coming into town and getting accused of a crime and then having to clear himself and then solve the murder. And there's the famous slap heard around the world, as they describe, when Mr. Tibbs slaps, slaps the racist white guy. So he does that. And then he gets Oscar nominated for that. He meets, meets one of his idols, somebody he identifies with, RFK, who also was big on healing the divide and removing the concept of othering. But he throughout his whole career, he's been exploring the concept of otherness. And that is what made him a good director. Because Jerome Robbins came into this project, as we heard about in the other documentary, where he pushed his team of Bach and Harnick to distill the piece down into its universal concept of tradition, Mm -hmm. which is because Jerome Robbins understood it has to be about something bigger in order to connect with the wider audience. So we don't just shoot our load with just the Jewish community. It has to come to something bigger. And by having someone who clearly identifies with the Jewish religion, but isn't Jewish, but understands the concept of other, and he's also an Oscar nominated and a best picture director winner with in the heat of the night. Mm-hmm. So he clearly understands the concept of outsideness, otherness. That's what made him the good choice for this is because he brought a universal view of understanding what does it mean to be other. Because he does a very good job of while you don't hate the Russian characters or the constable, you certainly can feel and understand some of the problem or some of the push and pull they face, like the fact he added in a scene with the constable where his higher up comes to town and says, I notice there's not many demonstrations in this area. It's quite peaceful here. Do we need to send somebody else in to, to do your job for you? And that's really the catalyst for why the constable does what he does, and why he really is kind of put. It. And the fact there's a close up of him at the end when he's watching everybody leave the town, and there's pain in that man's face. He's not gleefully twirling his big Russian mustache, which he has. He does <laughs> have. It's a beautiful mustache. But he took a character of the constable who's really kind of an overlooked side character because he doesn't really have a song. He kind of appears and disappears. But the fact he's referenced throughout the piece as someone who is. Once again, he's kind of like Jewison where he's on the outside looking in to this community in this circle.
2: But not posing um, an active threat to it. <laughs> yes, Well, correct. the constable yes. is Jewison, yes. is what I'm saying, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. But it's that whole thing of, you wouldn't get that perspective of finding the otherness in every character of that piece. Fieka is othered in his story. He chooses to leave town with Hava to go to Krakow. Which, as we know, is a doom for them later on. But the fact that like they choose to leave, which which makes you sympathize with Fiek and the fact that there's the scene where his friends are taunting Hava on the road. And he's the one that puts a stop to it and says, that's enough. Go home. We're done with this. So it's once again, it's showing the otherness in these characters who normally would just be played as the generic villain of the story and like that's important and i think that's more what the producer was trying maybe he was trying to get at when he said i don't want a second avenue yeah. yiddish production where no,
2: i get what he's saying i've got i don't want to yeah. like say that oh how dare he insult
0: the yiddish yeah. productions like i'm just saying like i think what they were going for was you want a universality and someone who will understand the concept of otherness that is explored in this piece because otherness is the besides is the other big thing which is why You can like as they show in this other documentary. It's done in inner city schools with Puerto Rican and Black children. It's done in Japan. It's done all over. It's done all over the world because everybody understands tradition and otherness. There's always a group on the outside or a group being persecuted, and that is what Norman Jewison's perspective. I mean, even with I mean, he took somebody like Cher for example and won her an Oscar for Moonstruck. Cher, by all accounts, was considered an other in Hollywood because. She was a singer. Hmm. She did the, she worked with Sonny Bonham. Nobody considered her an actual Oscar caliber actress. She was the other in the arts community, in that film community. But he took her into his film and won her an Oscar for it. So like, that's his gift. That is his empathetic ability As he can come into any situation and go. Because I mean, even in, like, even in the heat of the night, there are white characters in that who, while like his, the, Mr. Tibbs' partner is at the beginning of the film racist and looks down upon Sidney Poitier. But by the end, he's going, I need your help to solve this case. I can't do it. I'm not smart enough to get this case solved on my own. And it's an important case for us to solve. I need your help. Mm -hmm. And he understands what that othering does to that detective. So like, that's what Norman Jewison does so well. And that's why he is a good director for this this piece. And that's why they went to him. I'm not in the room. I didn't hear their pre- Meeting meetings about who we're we going to get to direct this, but I feel obviously coming out of in the heat of the night, them going, okay, this guy clearly understands the power of otherness as a whole, right. and he was able to depict that in such a beautiful way throughout the entire. I mean, even in the bar scene when Tevya and the Russian bump into each other, there is there is otherness in that there's others there's others, There's a fear of looking at them going what are we going to do i don't know you don't know me what are we going to do there's something there that he was able to pull out that maybe a, another director from one, from another perspective wouldn't have picked up on so uh, yeah that's why i think norman juicin is the proper choice for this end of rant well it's uh, you, sorry
2: you raised a lot of interesting points i kind of want to latch on to some of them and latch I like it. what I like something that you were saying actually specifically about Hava and Fiedka and this idea of otherness and their relationship. And this is actually a note that I wrote down for myself even before watching the documentary, just when I saw this list of questions you sent me. And I'm like, well, my answer to does the director need to be Jewish is kind of my same my same answer to, well, does Hava need to marry a Jew? And it's no. This is a story about the limits of traditionalism, of that insularity of looking Mm -hmm. only within your own community. So I really didn't feel like even before watching it and seeing, okay, just like what a case they're making for why Jewison was the ideal candidate. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, you know, we'll never look at Chava and say, oh, Mm -hmm. she's making a big mistake by marrying that Russian boy. Like Mm -hmm. uh, it's and we kind of talked about this at length in our previous episodes. We don't need to belabor it here. But yeah, I think that idea of the otherness within the story, and that's probably why I singled one of those moments out as possibly replacing this introductory sequence, Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. that it does speak to that same idea. And that I think as an audience, I would like to think we're supposed to sympathize with and identify with Hava, not Tevya, in that kind of moment. Oh,
0: absolutely. Your heart breaks for Tevya in that moment, because you're willing this man who's already broken so much from tradition to... Change his way. I mean, we're not going to relitigate that argument, that yeah. discussion. But the whole thing of, but even in that Norman Jew, in a scene that it would have been really easy for someone to make tevia the bad guy mm-hmm. in that scene. To make him really tyrannical and really just a mean brute of a man. And but yet him and Topol work together. I mean, it's actually I'm pretty sure it's this scene, or maybe because yeah, he's wearing entry, that outfit, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's that, but it's that thing of they're able to find the othering on both sides of this because Tevia feels othered by Hava's choice because now in the village he has a daughter who is dead to him which puts a mark on you that like like in a community where it's all about raising your family and keeping everybody together what did you do wrong Tevia? and Gold that one of your daughters has strayed from our flock to go marry an enemy of us what did you do wrong? so like the fact that he understood the regular ramifications of that choice that Hava makes and the othering and the fact that he like the fact that, he, uh, as we said, he adds in the scene of Golda going to the church, which wasn't necessary. She could have just showed up on the road running after Tevya saying, Tevya, Tevya, I went and saw a priest and he told me they were married. Like you didn't have to show Golda going into the church, right? but the fact that they did repeatedly shows the concept of othering that throughout this piece, it's all about the conflict of us versus them. We are othering. Where are we finding the middle ground? Like you would think in any given case, a mother going to a church for a daughter would be a happy thing of, oh, marriage, good, good, good. It's But that scene is played so ominously with the really, scary, with the really weird cl- lens tilted close-ups of the paintings on the wall with the eyes staring down at gold and the music is ominous. It's played almost like a horror movie. It's played as a very dark, scary scene. It's not played joyfully but they're capturing the otherness of feeling in that space of that but then also norman jewison also deep appreciation i mean you saw the production value and his research that he put into that like there's the picture book that they find right that has all the pictures of the shtetl and the fact that they will get into this more about production but it's the fact that he had such deep respect that even in the other documentary Topol talks about how well research norman jewison came into this project that he didn't just rely on his concept of understanding otherness. He went, no, no, we will get the Jewish elements of the story just right. We will not skimp on that for the sake of generalities. You will still see the Jewish people depicted properly in this, but we will get a bigger thematic thing woven into this piece too. So it, yeah. Uh, he's yeah, he, I, he absolutely was the right person at the right time to do this particular film and
2: he's also sorry one last point about yeah. said that we can move on but he's also just like adorable oh, yeah. I, I feel like that is well, they talk about
0: him becoming a teenage girl right well yeah and, he's,
2: and like he's with the daughters the what there was one moment in this documentary when i like had to pause it because i was laughing so hard where it was they were talking about wanting to get isaac stern to write and play the violin yeah. music for it and he kind of In, like, the present-day interviews, Jewison was recapping the Mm -hmm. conversation he had with the producers, and, like, I wrote it down verbatim because it was, like, so funny. He's like, the producers are like, you can't hire Isaac Stern, it's gonna cost too much money, and Jewison says... What are you talking about? He's the best violinist in the world. He's a Russian Jew. I, he's, I'm i telling you, <laughs> it'll mean something. To, like just the yeah. way he was like so frustrated decades later recounting this conversation. Yeah. Like he's just really cute. He's a cute yeah. little old man now, but he was like, he's just, but I'm I sure like that, that was a thing. Like he just, he's very charming. Yeah. He like, he also kind of, talking about these interesting anecdotes of screening the film for Golden My mm-hmm. Year and David Ben Gurion and meeting them. And he has, yeah, he's just this kind of interesting guy who seems really nice, down to earth, and, you know, has the progressive bona fides to really do yeah. the story justice. So, it's too
0: bad he never won Best Director.
2: Yeah, but got his honorary Oscar in he 1999. He got the honorary. <laughs> <got the> honor- <laughs> yeah. Which, Not Tennessee. bad for a guy, as he says. Not bad for a goy. Roll credits. Yeah. Well, let's
0: get into the next question, though, because. It'll tie back into this previous conversation, which is in the documentary, it is mentioned that Michelle Marsh, who played Mm -hmm. Huddle, the middle daughter, was the only daughter in the main trio of daughters to not be Jewish. Does being an actor versus a director alter your response to the previous question? Should religious heritage be a factor when it comes to casting decisions? ryan give me the lowdown on this
2: one like my answer is still no for all the same reasons but i can understand why Mm -hmm. there might seem to be a little not necessarily more at stake but different things at stake Mm. when it's the people on stage or on camera because i I go back max if you're watching this hi our (laughs) friend max ackerman who's been on a number of our episodes it's great Yeah, and we mentioned him in our last Fiddler episode too. I guess we (laughs) should probably get him on one of these Fiddler ones at one point so he can actually speak for himself. But he... When we did our panel on Paula Vogel's Indecent, he had like a lot of very strong thoughts about non-Jewish actors playing Jewish roles. And that was a plot point in Indecent for those who aren't familiar mm-hmm. with it. He brought up Tevye as an example that he's a, he really doesn't like when people like Scott Wentworth play Tevye at the Stratford yep. Festival. And he a term that he used at the time was Jew face. And I think that's interesting because I wonder, because Judaism is interesting
1: mm-hmm.
2: here, like as this thing that, Are Jews or are Jews not white? Like, is a question like, and like, I'm Jewish, I'm I consider myself white, I've never experienced any kind of like, racialized, yeah, yeah, like, experiences because, oh, you're Jewish, therefore you're not white, like, but I understand if you're talking to a Nazi or a Klansman, that they would have a very different view on this. Because when you use a term like Jew face, you are mm-hmm. evoking the specters of black face, yellow face. And we very easily understand why that's not OK. Or at least most of us do. Well. Oh. But is the thing that's not OK about them the use of paint, I guess, is mm-hmm. because that's a different factor. When you do Jew face, you don't have to apply this like layer of makeup to create a caricature or to inform your caricature but that doesn't make it necessarily not a caricature and yes. like we, we could ask for example when you did your whole Tevia spiel at the beginning of our last episode was that huh. jew face and i don't know i don't really i don't have strong enough opinions about this kind of thing because to me it doesn't really feel like at this particular historical juncture i don't feel like it's a real important site of marginalization i guess the way that something like blackface would be, but it is worth unpacking. But at the end of the day, just speaking for only myself, it doesn't bother mm-hmm. me that Huddle is the yeah that Michelle Marsh playing Huddle is mm-hmm. played by this non-Jewish actress. She still did a great job, and she they talk like all of the daughters interviewed in this documentary. They talk about their method acting experience yeah. that they really did immerse themselves into mm-hmm. it to the point where they did let their armpits grow. But yeah, like I think like method acting, I know it has a bad rap for very good reasons, but there is something to be said about th- well, and it also depends on which school because method can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people, but specifically like in the Lee Strasberg pr- tradition mm-hmm. that it is very much about just, you know, identifying with the character, understanding how their situation might relate to yours and forming that connection. So I think somebody who's willing to go through that type of empathetic exercise mm-hmm. Like, I don't have a problem with them doing that if they're actually going to the troubled understanding why caricatures can be harmful and often are harmful is because they don't try to develop or foster that sort of identification mm-hmm. that they see just these grotesque outside signifiers of what yes. it means to belong to this culture and play that in a derogatory manner. And I don't think that I've seen the film many times. I cannot say that Michelle March's performance does that, which is why I don't mm-hmm. really have a problem with it. I would almost think it would be maybe more interesting if Chava of the three daughters was the one played by a non-Jewish actor, because that could maybe subtextually be implying, well, she's the one to marry outside of the faith, because the Jew, the non-Jewish actress shouldn't be with a Jewish man. Could you imagine? Like, like, I get that there's some more, I guess, phenomenological baggage to that, Mm and I don't really think anyone would read much into it other than myself. And I don't really hold it to that kind of standard either, but yeah huddle huddle is fine. I think she did a great job, and I don't hold her religious upbringing against her, yeah long, long way of saying that,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so for me, I mean, there's the selfish answer, which is I want to play Tevia, so cast me, but my other thing is. No, religious heritage, I don't think, should be a factor in your casting decisions. It's different from ethnicity, where ethnicity for me is racially based, where it's like no white woman should ever play Mortar Mouth Maybell in Hairspray. That is a BIPOC woman's role. Same thing with Miss Saigon. No, no, No white actress should ever play the role of Kim or the engineer. With this, it's more along the lines of if you do cast someone who is not Jewish in the role, I would expect that actor or performer to go home and do quite a bit of research, Mm -hmm. go to your local synagogue, go to your, go, go on your documentary hunt and go and find your information and really research and come in like Norman Jewison did, knowing more Judaism than Topol did as as Topol has said in interviews. Like that's what I, and Michelle Marsh seems to have done the same thing where she came into this film she uh, uncomfortable with the fact that she wasn't well, she was the only non-Jewish actress, but to be honest, up until this point in, 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 I, until this documentary, I never picked her off as being non-Jewish mm-hmm. for me, she blended right in with her sisters, and she gives a heartbreaking performance of Far From the Home I Love you never, I never would have like, honestly, had said it in the documentary, I still to this day would have been, oh yeah, she, she's an actress, she played the role, she, I assumed she was Jewish, but that's the power of acting is about play, and it's about performance. It's about being able to step into any type of shoe within reason, and you play the part, meaning you come in, you do research, you play the part authentically. You don't play Alec Guinness, where he played Fagin in, in, I think, in the 1940s version of Oliver Twist, and he did a very anti-Semitic big nose over the top. Like, that's where I go, okay, that's down to direction and makeup, where they're choosing to be really crude and awful, which is which I think is a bad version of, 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 of what you call it, Jew face?
2: Yeah, well, just Jew- using the term that Max used, but yes. Yes,
0: correct. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, because for me, I go that for me, it's Jew face, where it's particularly being anti Semitic, it's over exaggerating those, it's going into caricature. So, I mean, if I were to play Topol, I definitely would not do the voice I did in the last opening. I would absolutely find my own way into the role. I would absolutely go and go and do my proper research. So if I were to come into play Tavia, I would have a good understanding, be able to say the prayers properly, and not bump, bumble and caric- caricature my way through it. Like I watch some of these high school productions of Fiddler, mm-hmm. and it's very clear that some of them are doing what they deem as what they feel is a Jewish kind of action or the voice they do. To like uh, that Yiddish kind of way of doing it. Like it's very important that if you're going to take on a role that you're not overly familiar with the culture and heritage of it, that you go away and do your due diligence and research.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that goes to for any role that you take on. If you're if you're playing a real person or somebody of a different culture, then go in and do your properly done research. Like if I was to go play Victor Hugo in a biopic about Victor Hugo. I would absolutely go and research French history. I would go in and understand the world that he was coming from, the world he was living in. So you could properly understand the character. i go to a proper dialect coach. So I wouldn't just be doing the fake French, you know, you do the proper work to play the character. And Michelle Marsh showed that's what you do. So of Norman Jewison coming into this film, he did the proper research and it shows. They had just come in and done stereotype stuff then that wouldn't have worked. Like, like Yent is a character that you have to get right. If not, it could become very stereotypical. So like that's a, so they cast Molly Picon to do the part. And she is Jewish and she knew how to do that character. Now if they cast somebody who was non-Jewish and they did that type of stereotype, then you're getting on the line of okay, we're going into a bit of a dangerous area here. So you gotta eat once it comes down to me of if you can play the part within reason. So once again, Ethnicity is different, but if you're going to play the part, then you do, Then it's your job to do due diligence and research until you come in as best prepared as you possibly can, and you don't rely on stereotypes to fill in the gaps, if that makes sense.
2: It does. I have a lot of thoughts, I, oh, I guess, boy. about unpacking your, like, well, first of all, I don't know if we can entirely say that we're talking, when we talk about Judaism, that it is just religion and not ethnicity, because True. there is an ethnic dimension to Judaism. There is. I mean,
0: I mean, Roslyn Harris talks about her nose. Yeah. And, and her being self-conscious of it until Barbra came along.
2: And like, I think like
0: the, the kind of the
2: Jews in Eastern Europe, in Poland, in Russia, in yeah. Ukraine, they were not considered Russians or Poles by True. the Russians and Poles, their community, that right. there is this kind of inherited baggage that yes. does come. And I can understand an argument that there is... That as a result of that, there is not necessarily no difference, but not as much difference as you'd think between something yep. like that and a white actor playing a mm-hmm. black role. Yes. I still don't think that's entirely called for. But I guess I follow up mm-hmm. question that I might have for you, mm-hmm. because I'm Jewish. Yeah. Ethnically speaking. Yep. If I don't believe I outwardly present as what we might understand as stereotypically Jewish mm-hmm. affectation. But if I were to play model in a production, I yeah. hope not because I'm not an actor. Uh, so something would be great model. I can see something that. must have gone horribly wrong for me to find myself <laughs> on stage playing model. But and I play up those potentially stereotypical affectations. Mm-hmm. If I, despite being Jewish myself, were to put on a kind of Jew face. Mm -hmm. to heighten that element, because I'm like, well, it's Fiddler, it's old country. This is how I have to behave. Mm -hmm. If I were to do that, does the fact that I am Jewish make it okay, Or are stereotypes categorically bad, regardless of who does them? Hmm. Oh, well, that's you a- don't have to. You don't have to have an answer to it necessarily. Now I've thrown a big question at you, but I think because that, that we're coming up against something very interesting here. Does the identity? It could be a roundtable
0: per- discussion, right?
2: It could be, and perhaps maybe one day we will do that. But yeah, I think the question is: Does the identity of the performers' synchronicity with the mm-hmm. identity, the kind of ethnic identity, so to speak, of the role negate the possibility of portraying it in a harmfully stereotypical manner?
0: I would go with for me, I would just do if you are a Jewish actor, you come from the Jewish faith and you come into the role of model and you've made this acting choice and the director okays it and the director understands and there's a dialogue there and there and like I would go I trust the performer as someone who has grown up within the faith in question to play that part the way they feel it's appropriate. Because okay you would understand the line of where does it go too far and become really bad. And where is it up to the line of, okay, we're just heightening something for the sake of a character, right? Like, I, I, like I'm trying to think of something in the Catholic religion, but I can't think of anything right now. I'm mean, well, not very boring thing. and bland in that sense. But like an
2: example that comes to my mind, I suppose, is I forget his name, but the indigenous actor who played the role of Pocahontas's father in Disney's Pocahontas Right. Yes. Like, he was himself Indigenous. He's a controversial figure within Indigenous rights activism. And he was, he very firmly, you know, made the argument that this is the best film that, you know, we could possibly get for our community, which a lot of people in his community disagreed with. Rightly so, in my opinion. But does him playing the role in that way, committing to it the way he does in a very fetishistic, Disneyfied interpretation of it. Does the fact that, well, he's Indigenous and he endorsed it by being in it and being so supportive of it, does that, yeah, should we accept his credentials as being in the community, as, you know, getting the pass on that? And maybe you and I are not in the position to be judge and jury on something like that, because we don't belong to that community ourselves. But I would not blame other Indigenous folk for taking issue with his stance Uh, and not, like, giving him carte blanche just because Mm -hmm. he does belong to that community.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i go back to he's part of that community so so clearly he has some bigger understanding than we ever would about things clearly it's clearly he has a certain belief at a certain point of view it's kind of like within the community like if you did do model and you played it up really big and it became caricature and offensive to some you may have to answer for that within your community However, I would go, as someone who is not Jewish, who has done my own research and has done my own thing with my own track, but you've done your journey and your research this, how you feel it should be played, I would go, I defer back to you and go, this is your opinion, this is the way you want to be portraying this role. Ergo, I trust your judgment in playing this part. Same thing with this actor, I forget his name, who played pa- Powhatan? I- yeah, Powhatan, yeah, I not- think. Yeah, pa- pa- yeah. Pa- Powhatan, I think, is the character name. Like, he came in, apparently he consulted on language. So, so they used proper language, Pocahontas' tribe, apparently. Appa- apparently he was a big consultant with them about yeah. things like that. So clearly he had some influence and base. Like it wasn't just, come on in. I mean, the problem comes when Jim Cummings, a white guy does your singing voice, yeah. that maybe there's a little bit of problems there. Well, but the fact that he was consulted, he clearly felt he was consulted, he felt heard, and he felt strong enough with the project that at the time in the 90s, now maybe his opinion has changed, decades later. But in the 90s, when you had things like Dancing with Wolves, and in like in going back into the history of indigenous performers in film, like Rita Moreno, who's Puerto Rican, playing island girls and things like that, and, and other indigenous women, very offensive costumes, playing roles that like maybe he felt at that time in the mid 90s, he goes, they, in fact they consulted, they used our language properly, they're not depicting us as savage villains of the story. We are people with our own brains, our own minds, our own character development. Like his character does, has a big journey in that film where he comes in saying the white people are dangerous. We don't want to touch them. And then he almost executes John Smith. And then at the end, he chooses peace at the end, whether, no, historical accuracy is a different story, but for yeah. his <laughs> character's journey, that is a big journey for someone to be on. And it's not a two-dimensional character. It is someone who goes through a bigger story. So maybe he felt that's why he felt justified in saying. This is a good story. It paints us in a decent light. We're not stereo we're, 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 like, in his painting we're not stereo like, like stereotypical as compared to like the 50s version of like sure. indigenous characters where like you have the paint the man red, I think it's called, or whatever that indigenous yeah. song Peter Pan is, mm-hmm. which is really offensive. Like that's it, like Pocahontas to Peter Pan, like yeah. still you, has a lot of
2: problems, but still yeah, a lot of
0: problems, but, long, but there's a huge yes. step up in proper representation and drawing and whatever. So I mean, once again, I would defer back to the person of that community going, you're playing this role. You're coming in with already a built-in experience experiences. And you've also, I hope have done research and this is your choice. Now you will have to justify that choice to whoever just says, I would have to justify my choices as an actor to whatever. Like if I played a Catholic priest and I play them as kind of creepy Kilsey Moore Hoffman does in doubt, and somebody from the Catholic church comes up and talks to me about it, I'm going to have to answer questions. I'm going to have to be, willing to have a conversation. Because once again, this type of topic brings up a lot of personal opinion. And I think that's the biggest thing here is this is our personal opinions on this subject. You walk down the street, you walk into your local synagogue, you may get an entirely different perspective of opinions, right? It's This is a big conversation that we're just skimming the surface of, I think it's the nicest way to say.
2: I suppose that's as good a point of any to cap this on. I know the next question we have will also bring a new wrinkle into this discussion. It does. So maybe this is the time for that.
0: It does. So Kenneth Turin, the Yiddish film critic featured in this documentary, gives his opinion that he didn't feel Topol was the right for the lead role of Tevye. Do you agree with his opinion, Ryan?
2: Yeah, like this. I actually want to hear your answer first before I get into mine. <laughs> Because, OK, like we we started talking about mm-hmm. this while we were planning the questions. True. And, well, actually, before you get in yours, I can because I wrote down the exact quote in the film where he explains yes. his reasoning. Yes, so, read the quote. I'll, so Kenneth Turin and I quote, Tevye is really a quintessential Eastern European Jew. Topol is many things, but no one would ever confuse him with an Eastern European Jew. That didn't work for me. That was a sticking point for me. I mean, Israeli Jews have a different physicality, a different relationship with the world. They wouldn't take any guff from anybody, end quote. hmm I'd like to hear your thoughts
0: first. Okay. So when he said this quote, I was kind of shocked because for me, I always felt, everybody agrees, Topol is Tevye. Like, that is his role. That, like, everybody, like, he's critically acclaimed for it. Like, Yul Brenner as the king in The King and I. Like, this is a role that people have paid him years to play like he's played it from before the film all the way up to basically 2009, 2010 like this was a big role for him everybody seemed to like him in the part and then to have somebody go I didn't really like him in that I didn't feel he was right I kind of go huh so for me I go I always I mean Topo will always be the quintessential Tevye for me as my dad says he has the right voice the right mannerisms for someone I but he goes I believe that he is an aged milkman of five daughters. I believe like I, I, he, ha, he has a believability to him. There is a relation that you understand about him. Now, whether or not he is, I wouldn't say maybe from looking at pictures of people from Eastern Europe, he, these shows, he definitely doesn't have, physically he may not look the part. Be, I, I, there are differences in that. But I mean, overall, I mean, I would definitely say I thoroughly enjoyed his performance as Tempe. I think there's, it's a beautiful layer performance. I am angry that he won the Oscar for this performance. It is Oscar worthy, absolutely. For me, I go. I understand in the sense of. I mean, he talks very fondly about Zero Mostel, playing this role. And Zero Mostel is a very different Topol or Tevya. Sorry, he has a very different Tevya compared he's to. Topol. <laughs> he's a very different Topol. But he. But once again, like you look at, you hear about, and they talk about this in their documentary of a. New York Jew would go, would look up at God in a situation and go, why? Pleading. Versus a Israeli Jew would look up at God and go, why? It's anger. There's, I'm not taking shit from anybody anymore. I'm fighting back. Right. Like Topol's big line is, This is still my home. Get off of my land. Right. They talk about that line in the other documentary and how he says it, how there's an authority to it. That maybe for a Jewish person from a different part of the world maybe wouldn't have said it like that. Maybe they're a little more put upon. But for the film, it works. There, once again, there, there is a universality to this particular Jew, Jewish performance that maybe is missing, that maybe this critic felt was missing, that wasn't specific enough, that maybe it was too universal. Norman Juice in, in, in erring on the side of believability and because that, that was Norman Juice's big thing was I need to believe. This guy could pull a dairy cart and be a conflicted man in this town. And he says Mustell was too shticky. He was too theatrical to play the part on film. And I agree. You look at, I mean, you, I read about stories about that. And the fact that there's a story of Mustell doing, if I were a rich man. And one of the gags in that is at the end of the song or during the song, he has an open jug of milk and he, his hand slips in and he falls in and he has to shake it off. Right. And yet that every they say about how throughout his run, that shtick got longer and longer to the point where he had a rag and he would wring the rag out. Like Zero Mostel was big. He worked for the stage. Yeah. He worked for that. He was shticky and he, he was Zero Mostel and filler on the roof. Norman Jewison wanted someone to disappear into the world. Topol and Tevya are interchangeable. I see Topol, and all I think about is Tevya. Yeah. I see Rita Moreno, I think Anita and West Side Story. There are characters that you play that you just claim and, and you identify, and it's the first image you think of with this. It's the same thing. And, that, and that's what I think Norman Jewison is going for. He didn't want Emma Watson playing Belle because that is a name. He didn't want a name. He wanted someone who could just seamlessly blend into this world he was creating. And Topol does a beautiful job of that. When he walks around that barn, it feels familiar. He knows he can step up off the ladder two steps early and make it to that landing in time. He knows what forces step on as he's walking around that barn. He knows that, he, I, I, he, like just the little things he does that show that he understands the world. And I think that was the important thing, was Topol became a big actor after this, but when he, at the time when they brought him in, he wasn't a big film actor. He was a guy in London from Israel who came to London not knowing the English version of the songs. Like, he was an actor... Of the stage, but he was able to be brought into the film and he blended in perfectly. So,
2: I'm also <laughs> struggling to think of another movie that I've seen Topol in. Which he was like, in
0: when... for Your Eyes Only with Bond.
2: Oh, I don't even think I saw that one. I oh, it's a good call. I don't recall a Bond movie with Topol in it, but I. But because it's interesting when you say like, oh yeah, he is synonymous with this role because <laughs> like. I'm like, have I seen any other movie with him or is he just Topol equals yeah. Tevye for me? Because yeah. Zero Mostel, I agree. He was yeah. like, he, I love him to bits. I think he yeah. he is a wonderful performer. I actually just earlier this week rewatched the Waiting for Godot made for TV version that he did with Burgess Meredith because right. I was teaching that in the class yes. that I ta for I did a lecture on. And yeah, that's my favorite version of Waiting for Godot with him, Zero Mostel as mm-hmm. Estragon. And that's who he is. That's him and his element yeah. as like a clownish vaudeville type mm-hmm. performer.
0: He was in A Fine Thing Happened on the Way of the Forum. No, no, I love him in
2: that too. Yeah. yeah, and that is definitely him and his element. So I would agree that he would definitely draw attention more to the comedy, which Topol does too, but in a very different way.
0: Well, Topol understands the comedy in the sense of, he like he talks about killing the joke, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. About the bird and the fish, which I'm sure Zero Mostel played out on stage because it is a funny line if you play it funny. But if you don't, it can be a really scary line because it's the warning to Hava of don't step outside the line here. I'm being lenient with you. I'm being a little jokey, but I'm not playing a big game here. And that's what Topol brought to that moment, right? He understood where that line of comedy was and where he could really hone in on the seriousness of the moment. Mm-hmm. So but back you, to the original question. With Yeah, you want to know what critic. I think, yes. as
2: a Jew, yes. <laughs> of Eastern European descent about, yes. does this Israeli actor bring that authentic, authenticity mm-hmm. to that role? Like, you just take for granted that he does. So to kind of turn it back on our friend Kenneth Turin here. I will not, I, I cannot take away from him his point that in part of that quote that I made a point of getting down here is that yeah. didn't work for me. That was a sticking point for mm-hmm.
1: me. And yeah. I
2: can never tell him
0: that yeah. it shouldn't be. You saw so, Zero style play yeah. Tevya, which will have an impact. Tom Wilkinson will always be my Valjean, just as Topo will always be my Tevya. He's the first person, he's the version I see in my head. And yeah. clearly this critic has ingrained to or, or zero Mustel's performance include yeah. that as a bar that was set for him
2: and like i think it's interesting because the reason why they didn't cast zero in the film is because he seemed too american yes. or that was one of the cited reasons so like yeah. if the argument is that you know topol's a lot of things but israeli jews aren't like eastern european jews yeah. while american jews also aren't like eastern yeah. european jews so i don't even know if necessarily he he would probably Kenneth Turn would probably prefer have preferred Zero Mostel, but I don't know mm-hmm. if he would probably have a similar critique just from the yep. American side. And keep in mind, and this I learned something very interesting from this mm-hmm. documentary, is that Frank Sinatra auditioned for the role of Tevia, yes. which I did not know. And could you imagine the version of oh, this film with, be horrible. with old Mickey Blue Eyes
0: playing? Yeah. well he like i mean i mean you read right about the way he treated directors on sets like mm-hmm. oceans 11 where he refused to do anything except for one take because he was off gambling and drinking yeah so, like so, i like, can't imagine him being working well with norman jewison who would work a scene and figure out the movement and the music mm-hmm. and how it all worked together he'd be like no once again and also it's frank sinatra being like he would yeah. pull the focus
2: talking about someone who like you can't see as a character because he's just yeah. himself like yeah. if Frank Sinatra had been cast as Tevye. The film Fiddler on Roof would have just been a footnote in Frank Sinatra's career. It wouldn't have been this cultural touchstone that it is today. Exactly. But so, yeah, I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind here. But to the crux of the argument, I don't agree, and I'm going to qualify this in a second, but I don't agree with Kenneth Turin that, quote, no one would ever confuse him, Topol, with an Eastern European Jew. End quote, because you quite literally just said that you did. And like I didn't know otherwise. I'm I'm not holding that against you because I too. Yeah. I've never been to Eastern Europe. I my family comes from there too, from a shtetl probably very similar to Anatevka, but like the branch of my family that that is here in Canada, like, or that I actually got to know was has been in Canada for several generations now. Right. And like specifically like of that kind of like Mm Russian-Ukrainian sort of side. Like on my dad's Mm -hmm. side, my mom's side is a lot more immediately close to Hungarian Jewry, which is quite different in a but yeah, I so I personally don't share Kenneth Turns' frame Mm -hmm. of reference for what is so different about authentic Eastern European Jews Mm -hmm. that Topol doesn't bring. He talks a lot about this. They don't take any guff from anyone, this physicality, the relationship with the world but and maybe this is kind of i don't know in holocaust studies, we talk a lot about the post survivor era that we're now entering mm-hmm. that there aren't a lot of people left to actually live through it who have remembered so it's up yeah. to the later generations to kind of keep this memory alive and the kind of interesting thing here is we're definitely in this post survivor era of mm-hmm. the shtetl jewry here yeah at least like the kind that's represented in here that if I, someone who comes from a direct line of that, would also share your recognition of Tevye, Jew, Eastern Europe, yeah. as this kind of simulacrum of what that looks like, that I'm not really basing this frame of reference on actual people from that actual culture, I'm basing my frame of reference on films and plays like Fiddler on the Roof. And yeah. I see Topol and I'm like, well, this isn't a documentary fiddler on the roof is not a documentary but it's presenting me with this very authentic feeling image Mm. and it's that feeling is what we gravitate towards more so than the actual like accountant's truth like of like to to use a Werner herzog coinage of like well what is actually true versus this kind of spiritual truth that we feel is being radiated from it i i take pause with turin's critique here not because he's not fair to have it, but he is applying his own frame of reference Mm. as if it is a universal, that nobody could possibly confuse this Israeli man with an Mm. Eastern European man. And
1: Mm.
2: I get that maybe the spirit of his point is that nobody should confuse this one type of Jew with this other type of Jew, but that's Mm -hmm. beside the point of whether or not people actually do. And Topol in particular, although he is Israeli and very Israeli in this way, Mm -hmm. he does come from that culture. He talked about his relationship to his father in this documentary and who who Mm -hmm. does come from that. So he's pretty close to it, even if he has been very assimilated into Israeli culture and Mm -hmm. carries himself in that characteristically Israeli way. So. Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's one that really would have never occurred to me if not for this little segment of this documentary. It's an
0: interesting segment. I never clocked that there would be a opposing opinion to it. It's fascinating
2: <laughs> yeah. to me. And I guess my kind of capstone, it's the way I answer all of these questions, is I don't have a problem with it. I don't, I wouldn't have a problem with a very Americanized interpretation of it, like... I, I guess I'm just, again, it comes back to the same point of I'm not necessarily precious of the proper way to depict this type of Judaism or to just Jewish characters in general. I think that, and especially on the is I know it's one thing different because, well, we will ha- always have different actors stepping into the role. The yeah. longevity of a show is dependent on that, whereas yeah. on film we have this one purified, you know, version crystallized mm-hmm. in this film that has to represent it until we get our remake in a couple of years and then yeah. we'll have another one
1: we'll but, see
2: yeah I just don't i don't like telling people that within reason they can't or shouldn't or aren't suited for a role and yeah. especially in this wonderful performance by a jewish actor yes. if we are even gonna harp on that point right. like i think it's fine yeah for
0: me I agree. It, it
2: works for me kenneth turin i can respect that it's a sticking
0: point for you Come talk to us. We'll happily yeah, get him more comments. about your opinion. I mean, once again, we don't know if that is a edited quote from him. I mean, we don't know if there's a longer conversation that maybe didn't make it into the final cut of the documentary. True. Who knows? So, Kenneth, come reach out to us. We'll happily talk to you. All right. Next question, which is, this documentary went into detail about how Jewison and his production team made great efforts to recreate the lost Steddles of Eastern Europe. Having seen the effort that made, that was made, does that change your perspective on the film at all?
2: It doesn't change my perspective. And it kind of, I guess, going back to all of these questions seem to bring us back to authenticity, authenticity. And like, I think that's an interesting theme that is evoked yeah. through this film, the documentary in particular, but it doesn't change my perspective because I already, in this idea of this spiritual authenticity that we were just talking about in the like previous question, I felt that, like, radiation Mm -hmm. of this looks like a shtetl, or at least the idea I have of a shtetl, I didn't need to see the meticulous work that went into creating Mm -hmm. that to feel that. It's good to know that they did that, but if, having never been to a shtetl myself, that my frame of reference for what does a shtetl look like comes from films like this, Mm -hmm. I was never in a position to question it or to argue that, oh, you know, this little detail isn't quite right. They wouldn't have, like, something like that in a shtetl, so... I'm glad to know they did do their homework but for me personally it's just like a well that's neat good good to learn mm. that they did that but it you know it doesn't make or break anything one way or the yeah. other I think something that I did find kind of interesting was when they talked about the film being filmed in Yugoslavia because and specifically the reason was because there was too much tension at the time between the US and the USSR so they couldn't yes. film in the actual place where a place like (laughs) Anatevka might have been so they they struck a deal with Tito and yeah he was very (laughs) favorable to because like yeah oh Brezhnev is lying too far but sure let's let's choose her authoritarians wisely so I thought that was just like an interesting detail (laughs) that I like I learned from this about the reasoning for why it was filmed in Yugoslavia which I knew that it was but it's I guess just a fun detail that they included here I don't know. What are your thoughts? I was having trouble thinking of like a good answer to how I thought um, about
0: this. So for me, like, once again, I've never been to a Jewish shtetl. So this film and other films like it give me the best frame of reference for what a turn of a century shtetl would have maybe probably looked like. What I do appreciate this documentary giving all that detail was it showed the attention and care that everybody on this team, whether you are Jewish or not, Norman Jewison made sure that everybody on his team did their utmost best to convey this world authentically. There wasn't a detail he didn't think about. The paintings on the wall of a synagogue, they could have painted anything. They could have written anything in Hebrew, and I guarantee you a majority of the audience, myself included, would have read that on the wall and gone, oh, yeah, sure, that's Hebrew. But the fact that he and his team made such a strong effort to authentically capture That world and the details that went into that world from how do they build a house? Would they use straw? Would they use wooden roofing tiles? How would they build a well? What type of mechanics would they have used? What type of things like all those little things you do to build this world of Anatevka? Because as we talked about in the previous review is Anatevka is a character of its own right in this story that in this film and in this musical. The, the village and the fact that like Jerome Robbins made the proscenium arch of the stage covered in little houses with individual lights so they could look like a little community lit up. Like the town is a character. So in order to make that character authentic and so you feel the pain when you're seeing it destroyed in, in the pogrom or you're seeing the everybody leave this town and the life literally bleeding out of this town as people walk away down the road. You have to put in the effort and the authenticity so you feel it. You feel the town. You feel the dirt and the dust. You feel the pain of the rabbi leaving the synagogue at the end of the movie when he's taking the scrolls. That's what they're called. The scrolls. The Torah. The Torah. Thank you. The Torah. When he's taking the Torah out of its protective case and having to load it into a cart, and you see him walking away from this beautiful piece of art, that is this wooden synagogue. You feel more because you go, oh, if they put in the effort, it's authentic. The, the age, of the wood just right. They did. It, it doesn't look like it's made in Ikea. Like the fact that it was revealed in this documentary, but reading you know, books about it is originally the film studio pitched that norman Jews should film the film right here in canada out in our prairie province yeah. of, of saskatchewan which i think they said that in the film too actually
1: i think I, i'm not
0: sure or if they did it. i can't remember but i know that's a fact that is something that they talk about in the book anyway that that's about the making of fiddler and it's the fact that it's like yeah it's a prairie province open land you can build anything out there and it will work just fine it'll look good but norman Jewison was like no we are going to eastern europe we're going to find a spot we're going to The fact, they went into many different villages. It wasn't just the first one off the side of the road they chose. They went into several and they played the soundtrack in their head, in their earpieces. So they could look at the village and go, is it matching the story? Is it matching the music? Is it matching the feel that we want to give? Like that type of detail shows the effort. And that makes you appreciate a film like this even more. It's like recently watching the, the set and costume costumers for West Side Story the most recent remake was Steven Spielberg, the production designer and the costume designer. You read about the effort they put in to making sure the color of the Puerto Rican flag was right. The costumes, making sure it would fit right in 1957, right when they were tearing down this four block radius of New York. So the signs are right. outfits are right. The signage, like all these details go into building a world and making it so it feels real and authentic because when you're portraying history, You want the authenticity, because when it doesn't work, people are going to be very quick to notice that. I mean, people always like to point out in Braveheart that people are wearing watches. There are cars driving in the background. Those are big, glaring ones. But like those are uh... big, glaring ones. But or even simple as the fact that the Scots people are portrayed as wearing nothing but no underwear and kilts and blue paint. And Scots people are like, "Uh, no, we weren't that like Neanderthalish. We came in with proper like armor and like we weren't these guys from the hills showing up to battle right like the fact that all these details that norman jewison put in reflect a greater appreciation that maybe i don't don't know what mel Mel brooks mel gibson was feeling big difference big difference (laughs) was feeling when he made braveheart i mean that film was historically inaccurate but like the fact that like the Scots people have come out of that movie saying, ah, oh, you didn't quite portray us properly there, or our history was just right there. But people accept it because it's a fun movie. It's a movie about freedom! Mm-hmm. But the fact that the Scots people come out of that going, he didn't portray us right, but people come out of Fiddler on the Roof going, no, I felt I was transported back to a time that is lost because it's been. I and mean, the fact that they say there is no more wooden synagogues because they all were burned during World War II. Mm-hmm. And you and the fact that you look at what they recreated and you realize, oh, my God, somebody burned that down yeah. out of hatred and we lost some of that beautiful art. And that is yeah. tragic. Like, and I
2: think there is an element of mm-hmm. fantasy to this because we yes. don't know what these actual wooden synagogues did look like. And again, it goes back to the fact that we look at a film Well, there like were this.
0: pictures that they had. Yeah. But like few reference pictures, like uh, you never know what they were. But you
2: have to dig in archives to find those. That's the research that they did here. None of us, maybe in the sixties, it was a little different because there were still survivors at the time, but none of us watching the film know what the, Mm -hmm. the, what we're recreating here. We use films like Fiddler to recreate that for us and create that frame of reference. I think of like it, Kazuo Ishiguro, the novelist, like he, In his, I think it was from his like Nobel acceptance speech, he talked about how his early novels, which were set in Japan, a country he only lived in for like the first few years of his life before moving to England, Mm -hmm. that they were, he was writing these novels to not necessarily create an accurate representation of this country that he has very little relationship to that he was exercising this fantasy version that he has of this homeland in those novels. But it wasn't about doing research and getting everything right. It was about taking the image in his head and Mm. putting it on the page as something that could be artistically conceptualized in this way. And I think for most of us, certainly today, but probably also for definitely like the American audiences watching Fiddler, that we gravitate towards this image because it feels on authentic Mm -hmm. and it's good to know that it is authentic in this way but if we found out through a documentary like this that it wasn't and they got all these things wrong Mm -hmm. to me i don't really feel like that would change the way i relate to it
0: Mm -hmm. no that's a fair point that's a fair point i mean i mean i'm sure there's a bit of romanticization because would a poor dairy man with five daughters have a two-story house in the village Probably but, not.
2: Is it two stories or is the bottom two stories? No, like that's the. No, latter? this
0: is two stories because the daughters are up on the upper floor. Oh, right. and During matchmaker, they're looking out the window, and Tevia and Gold have their room off the kitchen. But like, but so it's like so like I don't know like would they have had something like uh, like I don't want to say nice because I mean it's not like they're living in a mansion. But like, and, would their house have be been built like that? We don't and, know.
2: And maybe, and maybe they would have. Maybe the argument you're yep. making right now is a lot like I don't know. Would these Scotsmen be wearing underwear? I don't think so. And just have a Scotsman tell you, actually, yep. we would.
0: Like, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, but yeah, yeah, but for me, I just go overall. This that portion of the documentary gave me greater appreciation and showed once again the level of care that Norman Jewison brought in yeah. that would that would allow people like oh, the Israeli yeah. Prime Minister. David Ben
2: Gurion or Cold of My Ear, which both
0: of them. The fact that maybe. they both come out of that feeling moved by the piece, that they're seeing right. a piece of history. And they're not going, Well, that's wrong. Because I'm sure they, they would probably be people who probably know, mm-hmm. considering they had their communities have come from these places. There's probably stuff they they've seen or whatever that they would know. More than maybe Norman Jewish anymore. But the fact they come out of that crying and are affected by the piece just shows that there was nothing that was overly distracting. There was nothing that was so fantastical. That it was like, well, that would never work. It's like, no, no, like this all feels authentic. It all feels, it's creating a world that you really can connect with and that you feel the pain for when it went at the end of the story when they all have to leave the village. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. All right. Should we get into the last question, Ryan? Yeah.
1: We've I been at
0: this good. almost two hours. We have. Okay. So, in the past few years, we've seen musical films directed by directors who don't have experience in working with musicals such as Tom Hooper, who did Les Miz and Cats, Joel Schumacher, who directed Vincent the Opera, Bill Condon, who directed Dreamgirls and Beauty and the Beast, and Stephen Chabotsky, who recently just directed Dear Evan Hansen. Does this documentary prove that only directors with an understanding of musicals should be tasked with directing movie musicals? Ryan.
2: Well, you're the expert in this more so than I am. <laughs> I'll one thing that this might be another one that I want to volley more so to you to say your piece before I but I will just say one thing that I thought was really funny since this it wasn't necessarily explicitly an argument that the film is putting forward even though they were very meticulous about just showing how much Jewison knew about musicals yeah. but there was yeah there was the scene I'm trying to remember the context in which it came up but it basically showed Clint Eastwood in the film paint your wagon yes
0: where he's singing yeah, yeah he's about, about actors who would have Pretend, yeah. Who could have been cast in the in the film right. they were casting? I think so
2: leading up to this, and maybe Sinatra was going to play Tevye, the, yes. But I think Clint is so funny that Clint Eastwood is the example they use here because <laughs> he's he directed Jersey Boys. Like he has since become one of these directors. Yeah, who, that movie
0: didn't turn out well either. Yeah, so I, 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 I could I have kinda, put
2: him on there, though. Yeah, I, I just thought that was like an interesting of all the people he could have picked. I thought, blue there's an interesting undercurrent to this one there in particular. Is. Which I actually still haven't seen the film Jersey Boy, so I'm not in a position
0: to comment it on it. wasn't horrible, but it wasn't great either. Yeah. It's kind of middle of the road.
2: Okay, but no, I want to hear, since you're the musical expert, what is your <laughs> thought on this one? Oh, I,
0: I appreciate being called the musical expert. So for me, I go, what this film illustrates more than anything is having an understanding of music and musicality absolutely sh- is, it should be an integral part of filming a movie musical because it affects everybody else in the team. John Williams is the one that really brings up the fact that like Norman Jewison understood music so I could talk to him on a musical beat by beat level and understand what exactly we had to do. Like the fact they talk, the simple act of, top, of Topol or Tevia during, if I were a rich man climbing up a ladder to get to a second level. Or him stepping in a pile of horse dung uh, in his barn at the end of the song. All that is timed with the music. Or the fact that when they went into a village, they were pacing out steps to figure out would this work logistically with the music. Like, And Norman Juson was thinking about that. So he's like, okay, how do I go about articulating this? And I mean, Rob Marshall comes from a, a, a choreographer. And you can see that in Chicago. Everything he does is with the musical lens, like that whole opening affair sequence with Renee Zellwinger and her lover, where they're putting their hands on the door and they're in bed sleeping together. All that is timed musically. There are beats of taking off a belt. There are things you think about if you know musicals of, oh, I can't just have him walk up the stairs. If he's off from the music, it's not going to look right. So I got to figure out a way to mesh this together. And I mean, Tom Hooper, God bless you, buddy. But like his concept of singing live on set wasn't a bad idea. It wasn't because, because I mean, I think it's a, actually not a bad idea to have actors sing live on set. The issue became was because he didn't understand music, he let the actors have free reign on set, meaning they had a personal accompanist in their ear playing. And basically afterwards, the orchestra would have to go back in and try and match the performance, mm-hmm. which you watch the documentary of that the direct conductor's basically almost in tears because of how much it's like, okay, he speeds up in this bar, but then is shorter in this bar. It's like, if you, if you as a director don't understand the basics of, that's a bad idea, you should rehearse the song and know exactly what version, maybe you have three versions where you pause a little bit more here, you don't pause there. Like, maybe you do that, but like the effort that you put in to understand musicality will come off in the end product. Steven Spielberg with his most recent production, What's That Story, absolutely understood the musicality. He understood it. Like, you watch that Tonight Quintet mm-hmm. and just the movements that get made, like the fact that when, they, when the Jets and the Sharks burst through their doors of their meeting halls as they march toward the rumble. It's all timed perfectly, so you feel that, pow, the door opens and out they come like a rocket. Or Maria, and Riff, crossing each other in the street, that realizing and they're singing opposite each other. Little things like that that you would do because you understand musically how this all connects to each other. You watch the Tonight Quintet versus One Day More, polar opposite big group number songs. Like One Day More, it's all awkwardly cut. You got really weird close-ups of Russell Crowe. The Tinardi H are somehow in the bar, but not really in the bar. Like it, it doesn't capture the bigger picture. You watch the Tonight Quintet and you feel the journey of all these people going off to the rumble while also the other people crossing paths with each other in this four block radius. Spielberg understood musicality, how to cut and how to make that work. And Norman Jewison's the same way. You watch Killer on the Roof. It's not like Tom Hooper where everything is close up. You know, we're going to look up Topol's nostril the whole time. He understood. Cut wide, cut in. When do I? And they talk about that in this documentary. And they show Judy Garland's clip, right? Because he directed variety shows. Perry Belafonte. When do you cut and close for a big note? When do you pull back and show the world or show the movement? Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise are the same way in the 61 version of West Side story. When they're filming that opening fight in New York, the prologue, it's all open. You can see the world that's informing this piece. Same thing to the series people were doing the same thing. They understood go open, go wide, show the footwork, show the dance, show the power. He understood how to capture that movement because capturing a musical for a film is really hard to do. And they talk about that in this, where it's hard putting something that's musically done on stage and translating it onto film. Because they talk about how in 61 or whatever, there being another film of how to succeed in business without really trying. And they talk about how all those musical numbers were shot very proscenium, very kind of wide, let the actor move across the the shot like, like they're on stage. You watch tradition or the wedding dance. There are some shots that are proscenium that are wide, but then, as you see Norman Jewison, it's like no, no. We'll have them cut in front of the camera. We'll have them do things like that to really kind of animate the shot and capture the, capture it tight, and you feel it. So I think this is a really good documentary showing what a good musical director understands when they come into a movie musical, which is they understand musicality and how that affects the way films are made and how important that is to the overall thing. Because when you're missing it, if You can really tell. And it's like, ooh, that just doesn't feel right. Like Rob Marshall, who did a really great job in Chicago, also did Nine and Into the Woods. I would say Into the Woods is better than Nine. Nine just doesn't feel, it doesn't quite work right. There's something off. He didn't quite understand how to translate that from stage to screen. You need a director who understands, how am I going to translate this from stage to screen? Steven Spielberg grew up with West Side Story. He grew up with the album. He had been thinking about this film. For ages, like, in, like, I'll be honest, in my head, the movie musical I would love to direct is Parade by Jason Robert Brown and Alfred Urie and, and Hal Prince. All about the lynching of Leo Frank. But anyway, like, I know, like, I, I in my head can picture, and I can, and if I were, I can like, easily storyboard for you a sequence from that film, because I thought about it, and I know, okay, Leo Frank's going to walk up the stairs into his office during this song. These are the points we have to hit in the song, because he has to come into the office and close his window to shut the people out. We want to be tight on him to feel that claustrophobic tightness. Same thing with If I Were a Rich Man. It, like It's big, it's wide, because Tevia is feeling aspirational, right? He's feeling like he's owning the barn. This is his domain, and he's imagining the world, right? But then you go in and watch Do, Do You Love Me? Which is this beautiful duet between Norma, Crane as Golda, and Topol as Tevia. It's all shot almost handheld in, mid, in the mid-range close-up from like chest to head. It's very close and very quiet. It's a totally different performance. It's not big and bon- 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 bombastic. Bombastic. Thank you. But like it is on stage. Like Gold on stage when you listen to the recordings of Golda doing the, do you what? You know, like really big. And then like Norma Crane's is do I what? Like it's subtle. And as a director, you would understand, oh, I got to go small. I got to go this is a secret conversation. I'm almost whispering this song to each other because it's a private moment. It's intimate. And you understand that but also not being up their freaking nostril like Tom Cooper would have done it, right? So it's that thing there. And understanding how to take something that's mundane and and kind of everyday-ish and you musicalize it. Like you watch that Matchmaker song and they're hanging laundry or they're getting dressed for Sabbath. All that is musically done. You watch Jervon Hansen. It's a lot of... Mu- mundane modern things walking through a school hallway driving in a car sitting on a couch if you have someone who's more musical you would understand where do i cut what beat do i cut on to really hit the music and make that transition work how do i animate a moment of cooking in a kitchen tim burton actually did a pretty good job with sweeney todd i would say Mm -hmm. he did a pretty good job of understanding musically where to make the cuts and the music in the film so it all flows together. And it works well. And he knew knew how to balance his shots. So I'd say Tim actually did a pretty good job with Sweeney Todd. There's other things I have problems with that film about, but that's a story for a different day. But for me, I go, yes, this documentary does prove that in order to properly adapt a film from stage to screen, don't just hire the big name director or the person who is a hot pick. Look for someone like a Spielberg, like a Norman Jewison, like a Rob Marshall, for the most part, who will come in and go, I understand this piece, I understand the world, I understand how to cut this, who have some predisposition to rhythm and musicality. Because if you don't, you get a cats, or a phantom of the opera, or a bland remake of Beauty and the Beast. Okay. I don't know how much more I could possibly add
2: to that. Take try it. <laughs> like I think. Tom Hooper is such an interesting person to me.
0: He uh, is a decent director. Like King, King's speech, I really enjoyed. King's King
2: speech is fine. It's like I a know people don't like it, it. Kind of drama, like it's not doing anything showy. So that's where he, that's where he, like, it does very well. But because... Tom Hooper,
0: if you listen to his commentary, mm-hmm. he does know how to frame a shot. Like the fact that, like, Birdie is always just off center frame because he's off center for a majority of the film. Mm-hmm. While Lionel is center frame, and I mean, even in Lame is, I'll give him credit. The fact that a lot of Javert's shots are framed with some type of angelic figure or some type of authority image above him the whole time. So it's that imposing presence. I do give him credit. Like, he wants to think about it. He can. It just, he didn't hit the mark all the time. But- yeah.
2: Like, I don't know. I think, because what I sort of, where my mind goes with the question, like, and I get that this isn't what you were saying per se, but it's should we be. Bringing in film, sorry, theater directors to do these kinds of musical film adaptations, and it doesn't necessarily I it say I don't that because
0: think... Spielberg isn't a theater director. Yeah, but he's someone but... who's done musical numbers in other movies, and he has an appreciation and understanding for music. For long, I mean, some of his films have some of the best film scores because he worked with John Williams. But you watch those two together, and they understand how to cut with music. Like you watch Indiana Jones. Sure. There is a musicality to some, to that truck sequence where they're chasing the arc, right like just the way the movie and the music move together
1: mm-hmm.
0: like there is a musicality to that he has a he has that internal rhythm and beat to him that he gets the rhythmatic nature that needs to happen to make a shot work right. anyway back to you no cuz
2: and I, I wasn't suggesting that's what you were implying mm-hmm. and like i think yeah. I don't believe Edgar Wright has any like theater experience, but I would love to see him direct a musical. I like, guess just someone else who has like a great sense of like rhythm and. Uh, yeah, that, yeah,
0: yeah. Good rhythm is important. Like Mel Brooks yeah. was, was almost a professional drummer and mm-hmm. he has really good rhythm. Like, anybody who talks to him, talk to you, you can talk to about Mel uh, Brooks' drumming says he is really good. And I mean, that shows in his comedy. Yeah. Comedy is rhythm. Comedy is timing. Well,
2: especially physical comedy, which yeah. he excelled at. But... He does.
0: He really does. Yeah. But like that has musicality. Comedy has musicality. A good comedy has musicality. It has a natural rhythm that you feel that it's set up punchline. Right. Cause
2: yeah, like I think why I sort of bring up, well, should we be hiring theater directors to do films like that are like musical based? I kind of respect Tom Hooper in a weird way. I don't think his movies are very good, especially not the two musicals that he's done. But I kind of admire the audacity that he sort of brings like into it like Mm -hmm. or like not again not that it's like necessarily like earned this like confidence that he has in his vision of these projects but he is trying to do these like interesting things that are universally hated by everybody who sees them but (laughs) like but I see him as someone who wants to marry the two media of film and theater yeah. very in like interesting ways. And they well, don't... that's
0: why you sing live on set, right? Like, yeah. And that's the whole why it like... was create the authentic. So the actor has a cho- an acting choice on set of how yeah. do I sing this? Because when you watch a live performance,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it there is acting choices. Like sometimes you'll like, like sometimes you will rush as a part of the scores. So, so, so you can have an acting moment somewhere, right? Like, Absolutely. Like A good example of someone who is a theater director who didn't do well directing film was Susan Stroman, who did The Producers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: She directed the Broadway show, The Producers, and then she directed the film version. Right. She didn't direct a bad film. She just was very theatrical in her direction. Like, it's a lot of big, wide proscenium shots to capture Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, and she didn't know how to rein them mm-hmm. in to give a film performance versus a theatrical performance. Yeah. And Tom Hooper is really, I mean, I admire him to just come and say, I want to sing live on set. Like, I go, good on you. It's just, you should have gone and gone to musical for, his musical director and gone, okay, we're going to sing live on set. What should we really do? I mean, obviously, don't get you Jacqueline Carpillage to, to do the opening soliloquy where there's no rhythm. Because melodically, you're setting up the parallels between Javert and Valjean in, that, in, in their twin soliloquies, right? Like, musically, they are identical to each other and in order to get those rhythmic and melodic touch points because like any musical score music is used as a honing beacon tool to kind of inform the audience but when you don't sing on rhythm you're missing entirely what is going on there so
1: Mm
0: -hmm. yeah Yeah. back to you i keep no no it's fine
2: i'm still trying to chew on my thoughts because yeah like i I think the close-ups that you, like, complain about in something like *Lame* is the 2012 Tom Hooper movie, to me, I see that as part of this idea of marrying the theater in the film. Like, we're performing live on set, like theater, but we have the full range of cinematic camera angles that we can do with, now he doesn't necessarily make as much good use of editing as we could hope because he stays in these very long cuts, like, but it's sort of, there is something interesting about, oh, wow, it's, it feels like a stage musical, but I'm up close and personal, yeah. like a movie, which you don't yeah. get when, and like, I admire the, yeah. there's something interesting about trying something like that, like Cats, as much of a dumpster fire as that film turned oh. out to be, but you can't really do CGI in theater. Like, where you, I've no, seen thank a lot God. of, well, I know, but <laughs> I mean, I, I've seen, the
1: cats
0: is, is that it is human and that it is the lycra spandex and no, the, there's but, something magical about that
2: but like i i don't know i think it's interesting to try because like i've seen a lot of theater that has attempted to do things like motion capture where you have like projected on the screen and you did I don't it at think, york
0: remember midsummer I, night's
2: dream i remember and i saw another one pretty recently that i won't name but like okay but i guess yeah i kind of think there's something compelling about okay can you do a story with photorealistic cat mm-hmm. fur <laughs> like yeah. this, no, Like no. It, it looks terrible and it's creepy as all hell. <laughs> Release like, the
0: fuckhole cut.
2: Yeah, no, it's <laughs> not. But yeah, like I, I just, I don't know. I feel like people love hating on Tom Hooper because of the end product, which I agree is really, really un, yeah, underwhelming at best and disconcerting at worst. But like, I don't know. I feel like he's this interesting tragic figure to me. Of and the yeah, fact I that, yeah, I
0: mean, like, Liam is what had promise.
2: I uh, it did, I, and it was very I, successful. I was
0: enthusiastic about that film. So it was, was nominated for Best Picture. I was rooting for it to be Best Picture over Argo because I do think there are merits in that film. I mean, what, what I think tripped him up more than anything was he edited I Dream to Dream, as he said, and he figured out the close up of, oh my goodness, in Hathaway, it can hold the screen for the three minutes of that song perfectly. And then he went back and edited the rest of the film. Cause I mean, you watch the opening prologue right up until the Valjean Salutcli, and it's all beautiful, epic shots. Like you come out of the water, and you pan down to the prisoners pulling in the ship, and it's all these big, wide, expansive set, set shots. And Patty Lapone brought up a really good point about why the close-ups were not a great thing. Because she goes, "What what's missed when you don't do when you're always in close-up like Tom Hooper chose to be?" is you're missing what's informing the song in the world. Like In Hathaway earned the right to do a close-up of I Dreamed to Do because we just watched her get fired. We've seen her sell her hair, her teeth. She's earned because like, what more is there to inform you about by that point in the song? Like she's sitting on a bed in a creaky boat. There's not much more that can inform you in this. So that was earned. Like in Fiddler... Like, like there are moments when, ta- when Norman Jewison chose to go in tight, like like the fact that the Havala ballet, that's all done in close up. That is all done with, yeah, him being really tight close up, sitting on the cart. Because then it fades into his memory as he's watching this ballet sequence, right? And he comes out, and Havas right there, up close, tight. Tom Hooper came in with a good idea. It's just he didn't once again he didn't have the team in place to think about it and edit it. Properly to go. Okay, what are we missing by doing all this in close up? Like you're missing the expansive shot, like the fact that Valjean's soliloquy is sung in a church. The whole thing about Valjean is he's talking to God. He's asking, "What do I do? What have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? Become a thief on the night? Become a dog on the run?" Like and he's talking about like the influence of God and the guilt of God in that moment is looking down on him. But you don't get that. Meanwhile, when you walk into the church with Golda. Norman Jewison was very smart. He went wide. He made Golda feel small and helpless as all these eyes and these murals are staring down at her. There is a danger in that space. There are, same thing with West Side Story. Rita Moreno walks into Doc's candy shop with the Jets. Robert Wise starts wide and then very quickly gets right in there tight because all the Jets surround her and you feel that claustrophobic impending doom and danger. Of she is now surrounded by a bunch of proverbial sharps, and she is the meat that is that's about to get consumed. You feel the danger. So once again, Tom Hooper, and it's weird because as I said, Tom Hooper does get it. Like he directs other good movies that are not musicals and understands shot composition. It's just he gets the lame is, and it's like that all went out the window. Like like like, give me the wide barricade epic shots of the barricade, capture the fall of the barricade, and not herky jerky shaky cam shit like. Capture the and I because because I've shown you the screenplay. And you read that scene in the screenplay. It's so elegant where they describe the bodies, following the broken stairs, strewn, balletic. Like 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 you read the like you read the description and it's so poetic and beautiful. And then you watch it and it's yeah. What's going on? What's happening? It, it's just weird the way they do that. So I just go. You have to be a good in order to understand music and musicality. You should have some type of experience. I mean, Norman Jewison was Harry Belafonte, and they also reveal at UFT, shout out to UFT, he did musical reviews. Yeah. Spielberg had his musical number of Anything Goes in Temple of Doom, not the best Indiana Jones movie, and 1941. So he came in understanding music. Rob Marshall was a Broadway choreographer who had to, who is now a film director. He came in kind of knowing what to do. And it's important, I think. But Tom Hooper came in with a good idea, which is why the film got made, because... Cameron Aktoch couldn't find anybody to come up with an innovative idea of why do I make this movie now? How do I make it unique? Homer comes in and says, "Let's sing it live." Brilliant, I agree. Brilliant. He just had a horrible execution of an idea, <laughs> which, like any director, right? You come in with a good idea. I mean, our director, when like we did *Midsummer at York* with computer-generated donkey head, on paper and on, on in theory, it's a good idea. When you actually have to execute it. <laughs> It's a very different story. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I guess my answer just is pretty simple then. Like, I'm glad that they got Jewison who knew a thing or two about music and rhythm and musicality and he did a great job and the film speaks for itself. Agreed. I I guess this is all I have to say then. (laughs) I think we can call it here unless you had more questions you wanted to discuss. No,
0: I am good. Ryan, can we safely announce that one of these days we'll do a fiddler off the roof commentary?
2: (laughs) I, I or, guess, or maybe a
0: roundtable discussion? Are we done with Fiddler Ryan? Are we ever done? I don't think
2: we're done. During the Q&A of this documentary, yeah, Daniel mentioned that there was a third documentary that perhaps it's a little less specific about the musical itself, but I believe the title he said it was Shalom Alechem, Laughing in the Dark. It's specifically something about like Shalom
1: that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah.
2: I, I don't know if we can justify if we're getting far removed from the stage <laughs> show reviewing that on cup of hemlock theater yeah. but maybe one day we'll yeah. round out a fiddler trilogy with that but yeah. i have a feeling you and i will continue talking about fiddler until the day we both
0: die we will maybe one day ryan will have to have a production produced by cup of hemlock as oh. our first live our, as our first live performance uh, we'll talk <laughs> <laughs> yeah stay tuned everybody I'll in promises. the meantime <laughs> Ryan, give us that classic Ryan Barakovich send-off.
2: Hard to find on social media, so just follow Cup of Hemlock instead, COH Theater on all platforms. Mm-hmm. If you're watching on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. If you're watching on podcasts, do the podcast things. And yeah. Yeah, don't you don't have to follow little old me. mech. plug yourself.
0: Well, I mean, you can find follow me at Mackenzie Corner on all social media platforms. Uh, if you are gonna try and reach out and connect with me there, just message me saying I'm this person I saw here because my accounts are private. I will likely let you in. It's just you got to identify yourself first. I'm not just going to add a random person. But you can follow all my musical antics with Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast, where my my co-host Autumn and I break down all types of musicals. We did Fiddler all the way back as our season two opener. We are now nearing the end of season four on the road to season five. So you can definitely go back and check out our two plus hour breakdown of Fiddler on the Roof. You haven't had enough. Exactly. In case you haven't had enough, go do that. Why not? Have some fun. So, yeah. But other than that, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in and keep the feather with you at all times. Have a great rest of your day. Wow. I am. I am.